0: I want to let you turn to Mark chapter nine. And we are an important topic together for the two of you. The rest of you can listen in on this. The the series that we're on together is uh, the genius of Jesus, and we just desire to to know Christ as He desires to make Himself known in our lives. That's some that's simple uh, of a series that we're going through together. And the reason is is because this summer and every summer, um, people like to do what we call vacation. And uh, and there are some Sundays like today. I'm like, man, where did you go? I want to go on vacation with you, and and we could have church in two locations probably today. But um, but the the idea of this morning and and, and knowing Christ in making him known. We just want to spend the summer just getting to know Jesus and letting our heart just be saturated in his goodness. And and together we're we're in Mark chapter nine and and these three chapters, eight, nine, and 10 are such a central part of what Jesus desires to do in our lives. What we've seen throughout this gospel together as we've examined Mark is Jesus gave the declaration of his kingdom. Then he demonstrated his kingdom and he invites us to join. And Jesus goes around and he preaches to the crowds. But then in Mark chapter 8, something significant happens. He he becomes more intimate because he's approaching his death. He's about to make his transition into Jerusalem. He's about to go into Jerusalem with such boldness. In fact, it floors the disciples. But in in Mark chapter 8, he calls the disciples to something that is uh, profound, something that is sacrificial, something that we... As people would not be inclined to do, unless the glory of God has been made known in our lives. And so, this morning, that's really the central idea that I want to get across in our lives. uh, In our lives, as we worship here today, is that for the glory of God to be made known in our lives. Now, that is a that is a simple thought, but it's also profound. And I I would acknowledge it's difficult to always to just convey the significance and glory of who Jesus is. But Jesus does something uh, in the lives of his disciples here that he wants all of us to grab a hold of and see how that same power in which he demonstrates to the disciples in the story we're about to read is the same power that rests in you today. Because when we look at what Jesus calls his disciples to in Mark chapter eight, which I'm gonna read in just a moment, when we see what takes place here and the sacrifice he lays in our lives, we're not gonna have the ambition to wanna see this goal achieved unless the power of God rests in us. And so when we see the significance of Jesus' glory and we see how that translates into our lives, this calling that Jesus puts on his disciples, I find that we are compelled to live out in our lives when the glory of God rests in our hearts and in our our lives. And what we we studied together last week is this statement in Mark chapter 8, which is really the, the hinge point of this gospel. Jesus preaches to the crowds, he gives this, this statement that becomes so ostracizing to the people that the crowds really leave Jesus and the, the intimate followers of Christ stay with him. When Jesus gives this statement, you remember the backdrop of what Jesus said in this passage in Mark chapter 8 verse 31, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and, and the significance for that for all of us is there comes a place in all of our lives where we need to acknowledge who Jesus is. Jesus came in a very intimate form so that you could connect to him. Jesus gave his life so that you could experience a relationship with him for all of eternity. And so the intimacy of who Christ is needs to become personal to your lives. And so who Jesus is matters in your life. And Jesus asked Peter that question. Peter says, you're the Messiah. But what we find about the life of Peter is that Peter Peter then denies the acknowledgement of the Messiah because he had a misconception of what he thought the Messiah represented. He thought the Messiah was bringing his kingdom now. And that kingdom would set up Israel over, over everything. In fact, at the end of Mark, you see the disciples arguing about who's going to be greater in this kingdom. And Jesus turns their world upside down and, and he starts to talk about his suffering. He says in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. This idea of must, it must take place. It suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers and the law. And they must be killed and after three days rise again. And so Jesus is giving this idea of what must happen in his life. And just before this, Peter acknowledges who Jesus is, the Messiah, and God calls him a rock. You are the rock, and upon the foundation of me, I will build my church. And then right after this, after Jesus talks about he must die, Peter then tells Jesus, you need to not do that, Jesus. You're supposed to build your kingdom now. You're not supposed to suffer. You're supposed to end suffering. And then, and then uh, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so in one sense, he's this rock, and in the next sense, he's the devil himself. And then Jesus gives this call to the disciples. Then it's the hinge point statement of this gospel in which Jesus goes from preaching to the crowds to intimacy with his disciples and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he specifically talks about discipleship in chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10. And Jesus gave this statement. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross and follow me. And so Jesus gives this negative statement first of denying self, this place of operating from that's not good. And when we talk about denying self, this thought of denial is not necessarily denying personality, though it might include it if it's sinful. It's not this necessarily this idea of being a martyr, though your faith could lead to that. It's not even necessarily this idea of letting go of the things that you possess in this world, though Christ could call you to do that. The self-denial carries this idea of turning away from self-centered idolatry and the desire to orient life by your own self-interest and reorienting your life in the interest that is in Christ. Meaning at some point, your Christian faith will conflict with your convenience. But if your God is convenience, you will deny Jesus. And at the same time, it's also acknowledging the most valuable thing you have to give to God. It's yourself. And the greatest gift you have to offer is yourself. And so he says, deny self, take up your cross. And the idea of this cross is one of submission. Submission. You think in, in, in Roman society what the, what the picture of the cross was about, it publicly demonstrated one who once rebelled against Rome who now finds themselves in submiss- submission and obedience to Rome. One who once was a rebel against what Rome represented now is in submission under the authority of Rome as they carry their cross. And the cross demonstrates the same thing for us. I liken it to that of a, a symbol of marriage in the wedding ring. How Jesus gave all that he was for us and calls us to give all that we are to him. The idea in the thought of marriage is that one human being lays down their life for the benefit of another that they may become all that God has called them to be in him. And so in marriage, you see this mutual submission of the giving of yourself that two may become one. And so it is in Jesus and laying down of ourself as he laid down his life for us, we see this intimacy in our relationship with him. And then he calls us to this in identity. He calls us to follow him. And the laying down of our self-orientational orientation life about me becomes about him. And this word follow me is in what's called in Greek a present imperative. It means it's this this planning of your will of the submission of yourself every day the glory and goodness of who God is why would we do this why would someone lay themselves down like this to such an extent He tells us in the remaining verses, in verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And what he's recognizing for us this morning is that there is a battle taking place over your soul. I think in the life of an unbeliever, the stakes are even higher, but you, if you've even trusted in Christ this morning, I think it's important to recognize there is always a battle raging for your soul. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, meaning the followers of Jesus. He is the accuser of them. What Satan loves to do is to take your past and place that on you, to accuse you of that, to immobilize you of your future in Jesus. Because as long as he can trap you in your past, Keeps you from living out your future in Christ. And so this idea of following after Jesus is recognizing there is this battle that takes place over our soul and the decision to follow is to live in the identity of Christ and this present imperative, this continuation of stepping in Christ. What would compel us to do that? I think the answer is demonstrated in the sacrifice of Jesus he also continues to demonstrate it in Mark chapter 9 this morning. And I think it's this, his glory made known in our lives. Early today, I want us to understand not only just the glory of God, but how personal it becomes in our world because of the calling that Christ placed on you to live so sacrificially for him. It's only by the power of God that you could ever demonstrate a life like that. And it's only because of his glory made known in your lives that I think we we feel the pressing desire to live a life like that to such a degree. In 2 Corinthians chapter four and and verse 16, Paul, in recognizing the life of the disciples and the degree of which we give our lives and following after Christ, he says this, therefore we do not lose heart, In the context of 2 Corinthians verse 4, it's always important to ask what therefore is therefore. And so Paul has laid out the lives of the disciples and the sacrifice they're making and and the world and what they're losing in the world. But at the same time, what they're gaining in Jesus and the infinite worth that's present in Christ. And so he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. For our light and temporary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs our troubles. And so what he's, what he's recognizing in verse 17 is this glory of God. The thing that pales in comparison to the world is this eternal glory of God that far outweighs our troubles. Why would we give our lives to such a degree? Because in recognition, what the world has to offer, it is nothing in comparison to Jesus. And when that glory is made known in our lives, we give and we sacrifice and we lay ourselves down for that glory. In fact, the word glory carries this idea of burden. But on the same token, it also carries this thought of wealth and honor. Literally, it means the weight of the wealth and honor that is in Jesus. The depth of his glory made known in our lives compels us to give our lives to this degree. C.S. Lewis even wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. And in that, he calls believers to dive into the significance of who Christ is, because until your heart is saturated in the goodness of Jesus, you will never live your life the way that Christ has called you to. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this, Like an ignorant child, we go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's on the backdrop of Mark chapter 8, when Jesus shares with the disciples the laying down of their lives, that he then turns in in Mark chapter 9 and he says this. He says, Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What Jesus is saying is in the call of the sacrifice of your life. You need to touch up my glory. You need to see it demonstrated in your world. And I'll tell you, some people debate as to when this happened. When did Jesus reveal this power to the disciples? Some, some argue at the resurrection. Some argue at the ascension of Christ. Some argue at Pentecost. Some even say within the text, it happens in the very next verses. Jesus unfolds this story, which you're about to see. But what Jesus is recognizing is the significance of, of having demonstrated in their lives the weight of his glory. In fact, one of the most powerful verses, I think, in the Bible in the calling of believers happens in Romans chapter 12. If you read the book of Romans, it's the gospel laid out, and then chapter 12, he calls us to respond to that gospel, and he says this, "Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship." He's calling the body of Christ. To give your lives. He says your bodies individually. Your bodies who make up God's people. And then I love what he does here. He talks about this in the plural. Your bodies. But then he goes to the singular. As a living sacrifice. God sees his body. His church holistically as one sacrifice to his glory in this world. But then again he uses this word therefore. And the question becomes what's therefore therefore? What compels the life of the individual to, to, to lay down themselves to such a degree? And when you look in Romans chapter 11, the verses that just precede this verse, this is what it says in verse 33. All oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Did you catch that? To him be the glory forever. What compels your life to respond with such worship that it would sacrifice self to the glory of God? It's the weight of his glory being made known in our lives. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples and the calling that he's giving them in Mark chapter 8 and this profound thought that just floored the crowd is to saturate themselves in the weight of his glory to live out the calling which he has placed upon them. And so then it tells us in Mark 9, verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I know some of you read in verse 3 and you're like, Challenge accepted, right? <laughs> but Jesus is transfigured before them. Something interesting is happening in Mark chapter nine, verse two, and it's, it's comparable to Exodus chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24, God tells Moses and his followers that he's going to reveal themselves to him as they're making the old covenant or what is the old covenant about to become old before the Lord. They're making a covenant before God and God tells him he's going to appear. And six days later he does up on a mountain. And now here you find, in, uh, just like Exodus chapter 24 here in Mark 9, God's revealing his glory again. He promises that he's going to do that in Mark chapter 9. And six days later, he takes him up on the mountain just like Mark, uh, in Exodus chapter 24, revealing to him his glory, demonstrating what's going to be the new covenant in him. And he chooses to use this word that becomes significant to the Christian life. And I just want to lay this out as it weighs on the glory of God being made known in our lives. But he uses this word transfigured. It's a godly word. You're going to find that at this transfiguration, this glory cloud surrounds Jesus. Just like the glory cloud appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 24. When the presence of God was being made known to the people of Israel as they are wandering through the wilderness. It was done so by a cloud. And again, in this story, the, the glory cloud is surrounding Jesus because the presence of God is with him because it's in Jesus. It tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, deity dwells in bodily form in Christ. And so this idea of transfiguration happens. And the uniqueness of transfiguration, it literally means from the inside out. It's as if Jesus takes off this shell for just a moment of this human body of which he's going to suffer and die for our sins. And he exposes the full glory of who he is. From the inside out, the radiating glory of God is being made known in the lives of these disciples. Because God has called them to intimacy with Him. It's a demonstration on the backdrop of, uh, of Mark chapter 8 when Jesus calls them to die, that Jesus indeed transforms suffering into glory. Substance is glory. The only one that displays this glory is God. And Jesus is now demonstrating himself to the disciples as God in the flesh. You know what else is interesting? You study this transfiguration in Scripture. You see, it, 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 we'll look at it in a minute, but it's laid throughout the Bible. There's also another word in Scripture that positions itself directly against this Transfiguration. And I think Jesus wants the disciples to experience this transfiguration because they're in a system that is corrupt. They're missing the point of what the Messiah is about. It's become a false religion in, in that sense. Coming as the Messiah who is promised and they don't even see the point. And so when you study the, this idea of transfiguration within the Bible, there's another word that runs counterintuitive against it and, and it's this thought of masquerading. And it tells us, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, that his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. When we talk about this masquerading, I think it's important in building the thought that we're looking at what they're masquerading. It says in verse 14 that Satan is masquerading as an angel of Light. Now, I wouldn't recommend getting your theology from Halloween, but oftentimes during the season of Halloween, it's likely that you're going to see a few Satans running around. And when you see that depicted in the character that is our society today, most often you see him with red horns, right? And a pitchfork and a red tail. And he acts a lot like you think he would. <laughs> Get away from me, you hoodlum. But, but when you study Satan in scripture, Satan in his express form coming to us, let's demonstrated as an angel of light. Quite different from the demonic, dark, ugliness that we might perceive Satan to be. Satan's deceptive. And in fact, I would go this far and say, in being an angel of light, Satan has no problem with good. In fact, Satan may love good. Because there's a difference between good and godly. Satan wants people to be good all day long. As long as it's not connected to God. So you give the appearance of goodness. Goodness. But you deny the power thereof. And you think about how this plays out and what he's saying in this passage in verse 15: even the servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, or servants of light, or servants of good. And I think one of the things that makes religion attractive in this world is that we as people are, are made in the image of God. Which means all of us express a certain value, whether we acknowledge it from God or not, love, joy, peace, patience, the characteristics of God that's ingrained within us. And so there's a hint of that in every religion and therefore it might attract people to those things. But the point of what we're saying in this passage is that good isn't godly. And in our lives, some of the ways that we try to chalk up truth within this world is experiential. And so sometimes we'll attribute the th- things to be of God because they've been expressed in a good form and it may never have been connected to God. And when you walk in the world and you ask people, how do you know that what you believe is true? They, they chalk it up to this experiential demonstration in their lives. I know that it's true because I've, I've experienced this and it's been good. But when you compare all religions of this world side by side to one another, they teach all a different truth. But yet they can't all be true even though they've had a good experience. it isn't godly Uh, I heard a story once it was in a book I read that talked about the devil and a cohort walking down the street and in front of them is a man and the man picks up something shiny and the cohort looks to the devil and says what did the man pick up and the devil said a piece of the truth And the cohort gets uh, worried and he looks at the devil and said, aren't aren't you going to try to do something about it? And the devil said, no, I'm not worried about it. I'll just see that he makes a religion out of it. Good's not godly. The presentation of an angel of light, that's what he desires to demonstrate. The form of godliness, but deny its power. That's what this word masquerade means. This word masquerade is putting on this facade of what appears to be godliness. But when you peel back the mask, it's emptiness on the inside. And so when you look at this word for transfiguration, it literally means from the inside out. And when you compare it to this word masquerade, it's this appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. On the outside, it looks godly, but on the end, it's full of brokenness. It denies God. I don't want to worry you. So how do you know that what you believe is godly, right? How do you know that that what you follow in life is from God? In 1 John 4, John writes the test for believers. He says, brothers, believe not every spirit. Try the spirits whether they have God because many false prophets have gone in the world. Just because you have a spiritual feeling does not mean something good. we encounter people in this world and they might say, you know what? I'm spiritual. And I just want to acknowledge for a moment, that's, that's, that's nice. God, God makes us all spiritual beings. But at the same time, whether you acknowledge God or not, we're all spiritual beings. So it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) Whether you acknowledge the presence of, of, of a spiritual world or not, you're a spiritual being. And so just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's of God. And First John 4 says, test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. And so what John does in 1 John 4, starting in verse 2, down to verse 8, he describes things that you should experience if it's of God. That, that it should point us to the truth of God's word, that it should glorify Jesus in our lives, that it should oppose worldly systems and elevate the truth. And in verse seven and eight, it should teach us to love God and love others. Now we'll acknowledge in first John four, it presupposes the truth of, of God's word as being the foundation of truth and Jesus being who he claims to be. But in the life of the believer, that becomes the foundation to filter truth because good isn't necessarily godly. And so you see in the context of the story, these words positioning in itself against one another, this thought of masquerading and this thought of uh, Transfiguration. Masquerading, given the appearance of godliness, but denying its power inwardly. Masquerading even acknowledges that people have all sorts of religious experiences, but they all aren't from God. So, how do you experience transformation? When you look at the word masquerade, it's all about appearance and behavior. In fact, the idea of masquerading teaches us to cover up and perform in order to be accepted. But the idea of transformation speaks to the heart from the inside out. Transformation exposes what rests within and renews us afresh in Jesus. When you look at the the thought of Satan in this word, Satan and powers of darkness speak to our behavior and they glorify systems in our lives because it wants to give a facade. And so whatever system our idolatry might worship, Satan will teach us to masquerade ourselves within it, whether it be religion or politics or power or pleasure. It'll create some sort of system to masquerade your worth in behind it, but what you find in living out that system is emptiness still rests on the inside. What God speaks to is transfiguration. God speaks to our hearts. And in that he glorifies himself. Transforms our lives. Speaking to behavior without reaching the heart produces rebellion. But can I tell you what Jesus is interested in this morning? More than anything else is what rests within you. It's the beauty about Jesus becoming flesh. It tells us in John 3.18, Christ didn't come to condemn the world because the world already rests condemned. Rather, we can find salvation in Him. God sees what rests in your heart. And He loves you right where you are. And the weight of his glory being made known in your world is what compels you to respond with such sacrifice to him. Because this transfiguration is a demonstration of his grace being made known in your life. And listen, this is the way Jesus speaks about the heart in the Bible. He says in Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus delivers the very first sermon, the very first thing Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. So when you look at this transfiguration of Jesus, I don't want to just see it as some isolated story that these disciples had the opportunity to experience apart from you. But rather, when we look at this transfiguration of Jesus, it becomes significant for us to see this transfiguration of something that we can still have demonstrated in our lives today. And the reason is because of what the rest of the New Testament shares with us through this new covenant that Jesus establishes with his disciples. Because this word for transfiguration is the same word that's used in the New Testament that talks about transformation for the believer. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says this, but we all, look at this, with unveiled face, no longer a masquerade, but God's looking into your heart and you're able to see the glory of God. So we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transfigured or transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. From the inside out, God transforms your life in him. Remember Romans chapter 11 and 12, we already looked at together. The glory of God compels us in Romans 12:1. I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God, presenting yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And then it says this, do not be conformed to the world. It gives this thought that the world is this box and it's just pressing you in, trying to masquerade your life from God. But then it says, but be transformed The renewing of your mind. The same token in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. This new creation is this word for metamorphosis. It's what a butterfly goes through. The old self being made new in Jesus. And what is communicating in this story for us is when we see the sacrifice that Jesus calls his disciples to, and we see the impact that's made in this world as God works through them, that same power that worked in them is at work and alive in you. So we position this thought of masquerading towards transfiguration. I've, I've found within the Christian community there tends to be two responses. One's healthy and one's not. Let me give you the illustration. I like this. Sometimes in church, people give ideas of what we should do for Bible studies, which is good. We should study the Bible. Every once in a while, someone says, we should study revelations. Which, by the way, it's revelation. It's one revelation, okay? No plural. Don't, don't do that. If you're part of Alpine Bible Church, we we have to punish you for saying it. no, I'm just <laughs> it's revelation. One revelation, okay? And sometimes believers will read Revelation and they'll say, there's destruction. Build a bunker. Run to the hills. Pandemonium everywhere. Oh, my word. But when you read Revelation in the context for which it was written, it's a worship book. Of the victory of the Lamb who overcomes. Revelation isn't a doomsday, it's a declaration of the power that rests in Jesus and therefore in his church. When you read that book, you should see yourself as a victor in Jesus. That power is at work in you. That's why when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, God doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love And a sound mind. That's why when Paul wrote in in Corinthians chapter 4, the verse that we just read. The need above all else to see the weight of his glory. Therefore we do not lose heart, though the outer self is wasting away. Yet our inner self, look, the weight of his glory is being renewed day by day. For our light and temporary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs our troubles. And so when you read the story that takes place in Mark chapter nine, this isn't just a story that happens for three disciples and that's it. And they're kind of telling you this. It's saying that this transfiguration that's being demonstrated in the life of the believers is now being demonstrated in the life of God's followers today. That same power made known on this mountain is that same mountainous power that rests in the life of his believers So that when Jesus calls us to sacrifice our lives for him and we question, do I even have the ability? The answer is by his power and the weight of his glory. Yes. And so in Mark 9, the story goes on and it says this. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Notice he calls him Rabbi now, like just a teacher. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer for they were becoming, became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Peter again misses the point. It's good for us to be here, teacher, no longer Lord or Messiah. Can we build three things to acknowledge Moses' presence, Elijah's presence, and your presence? He missed the point of what God's doing in this story because Moses and Elijah become a representation And the representation in this story is the law in Moses and the prophets in Elijah, the culmination of the old covenant being demonstrated in this story because Jesus is about to to bring the new covenant to fruition. And so Moses and Elijah here, the demonstration, the old covenant in Christ, the fulfillment of everything in Jesus. And Peter just says, can we just acknowledge all three of you as equal? And that's when the glory cloud shows up and and, and the Father speaks and he makes the same statement that he made about Jesus at his baptism. You might remember this. This kesher draws to the Old Testament and the statement, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. When Jesus was baptized, the Father appeared and he gave this declaration over Jesus. And and now the Father is appearing and he's giving this declaration to the disciples. And if you remember, a kesher is the tying to the Old Testament, this imagery of what's represented. And this is my beloved son comes from Psalm chapter two, verse seven. It's a kingship Psalm. It's also a messianic Psalm, acknowledging that the King of Kings would one day come. And so the father's saying of Jesus, this is the King of Kings. This isn't just Moses and Elijah. This is the one who transfigures your life. Listen to him. In this statement, it comes from Isaiah chapter 42 and Deuteronomy 18. This is the suffering servant statement that the King of King, Lord of Lords would give his life. And this is the one you are to follow. The glory of God and the weightiness of this representation being demonstrated in the lives of the disciples. It's the same Glory that can rest in your souls. Now on a practical level, just think about what that means this morning in your worship. How sacred of an opportunity this is for you to connect to Christ. Not not only in your own personal worship, But think about your interaction with each other. What God desires to do in us and through us as living sacrifices together, as his community under the weight of his glory, what God wants to do in us is sacred. And the potential of what God can do through anyone that comes through our doors on Sunday as we gather to worship, how sacred it is. Can I tell you, church, that sacredness doesn't happen when someone just starts to preach a message from the pulpit. It happens the minute a car shows up in our parking lot. We're declaring the weight of his glory together. The significance of Christ and the way he continues to transform our lives And it's under the recognition of this statement that Jesus at the end of Mark gives this this thought towards the disciples. He says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. They're arguing over who's going to be greater in the kingdom. And then he sits down and he called the twelve, said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And the cool thing about the word child in Aramaic is it's also interchangeable with the word servant. Child and servant, are the same word in Aramaic. Jesus would have spoken. Jesus is recognizing something that's counter to the culture. Jesus is demonstrating in their is that people have certain value, and children, servants are considered beneath others. What Jesus is saying in the lives of the people is how sacred of moment it is when the transforming work of God happens in your life that you can begin to express it so that transforming of work of God can happen in the lives of others. And God can miraculously work in any way in this world. But the predominant way that God desires to work and chooses to work is in the form of his people who he has created in his image that you may open your mouth and declare the glory of who he is. And the only way that that happens to a degree that we lay ourselves underneath the feet of others that some might see as less valuable, though in the eyes of God are tremendously significant because he gives his life for them, is by seeing the way that his glory has weighted itself on us. And what I mean by that is Paul continues to remind in the Gospels of recognizing the compassion of Jesus in our hearts. Because in realizing how God in our darkness brought his light into our world reminds us of the way that we can extend that light into others. Not with a judgmental attitude, but with a heart of compassion. Because we know what Jesus did for us. When you see yourselves as helpless, unable to rescue, no longer able to hide behind the facade of a masquerade, but God exposing your heart and in its darkness, giving his life for you, the weight of that glory compels you to respond to the extent that you demonstrate your life towards others that need the weight of his glory rested upon them. I can't overemphasize how much it is important and crucial to this text to see that this transfiguration of Jesus hasn't stopped. That's the power of God in you, that's the light able to pierce the darkness. That's why Jesus in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 could continue to call his disciples to lay down their lives because he knew the power that would rest within you through him. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, says it like this, and I'm going to end with this thought. But whatever you do, Find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life. And find your way to say it and live for it and die for it. And you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. My joy grows with every soul that seeks the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember, you have one life. That's all. And you were made for God. Don't waste it. Rather, saturate yourself in the presence of His glory as He desires to make it known in your life. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.